0: Tonight we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Kings chapter 4 and possibly chapter 5. We'll see how things go. But you remember the last time we were together we looked at chapter 3. And chapter 3 of 1 Kings was after Solomon had become king. And if you recall, David, before he died, he basically told his son that there were certain individuals that he needed to be careful of. Certain individuals he needed to watch about, watch out for because David knew that they might be a detriment to the people of God and certainly to his reign. And David being a good father, even though he wasn't the best father, we looked at that when we were in 1 and 2 Samuel. But now as he is approaching death, he's realizing, I've got to really take care of things for my son because he's coming into the reign of being king over all of Israel at a very young age. We we think that uh, Solomon was somewhere in his early twenties, maybe even in his late teens, early twenties, when he came to the throne. And so there was a lot of inexperience, um, and there were a lot of things that um, that David wanted to instill within his son before he passed on. And you remember. There were certain individuals, certainly Adonijah, David's fourth son, who tried to overrule or overrun David with a coup, and uh, he was ultimately executed after David had passed away. Uh, That was one of the first things that had happened. Um, And we also know that one of the priests, one of the high priests, Abiathar, he was also uh, banished. Uh, He wasn't executed because he was a priest, and that was just God's grace. But he turned against David and, remember, sided with Adonijah, David's son, in coming against him. So he was banished, and only Zadok, who was the other high priest, continued in that uh, occupation. And we also know that Joab, who was David's nephew, uh, remember David's sister, his half-sister, her name was Zeruiah, and she had uh, three sons. And uh, they were mighty men in David's army. And Joab was his general. And ultimately, Joab turned against David and sided with Adonijah. And he was ultimately executed as well. And Shimei, you remember, he was the gentleman who cursed David. Uh, He wasn't executed like the others were, he was given very, he was under house arrest, basically. He violated that house arrest, and thus he was killed as a result of his not being faithful to what Solomon had given him, very specific, specifically concerning that. And then you remember in chapter 3, uh, Solomon goes to Gibeon, where, where they used to sacrifice at the high place there. A high place was a place of idolatrous worship. That's where they did a lot of the worship. Uh, Whether it was idolatrous or whether they sacrificed to Jehovah God, it was still the same defiled location where pagans had um, continued um, sacrificing to their false idols. And it was interestingly that that place where God spoke to Solomon in a dream, and, and God basically wrote Solomon a blank check and said, Solomon, ask what is it that you would like for me to do for you? I mean, think about that. Think about if God came to you tonight and said to you in a dream or in a vision of some kind, and says, "What would you like?" And, and then the response that you would give, that would be the real telling thing. I mean, what would we say? How tempted would we be to say, Lord, I want, uh, you know, I want like $17 million. Well, why not just try $34 million? Just double it. $34 million in the bank. I want all my stuff paid for. I want to have good health, you know, and all these things. And, and Solomon, and it's interesting, he, he, he didn't mention any of that. It wasn't even on his mind or his heart. And that's why God could make him one of the wealthiest men in the world, because it wasn't on the altar of his heart. In fact, he said... He says, you know, Lord, you, you, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I'm a little child. I do not how to go out or to come in. And he says, just give me an understanding heart to judge and to be able to rightly judge these people of yours, to rightly be able to figure out difficult things and to do the right thing by the people. See, it was other centered." It was never about Solomon being the most wealthy man. I wonder what would happen if God would have told him, or if he knew ahead of time, that God was going to bless him the way He did. You know But I'm glad that the Lord didn't do that, because we really find out really where Solomon was really at. He's just like, "You know what? I'm a very young guy. I've just come into this reign of my father. He was one of the greatest kings. He made his mistakes, but he's prepared everything. Everything is prepared for me. David did all of that for him. And now here I am, but I need help. I need help. And God says, you know what? Help is on the way. In fact, help has already come, Solomon, because I've already planted it within you. You are going to be the wisest man in all of the earth. There's never going to be one that's to has come before you or come after you, except for Jesus, of course. There is going to be no man on this earth that's going to be as wise as you are. And that still stands today, by the way. And I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for, Solomon. I'm going to give you all of the wealth and the riches of the world. And he did. For even from his standard, he was extremely the most wealthy man that the world has ever known. God gave him great wisdom and great wealth. And usually the wealth is what corrupts. But it wasn't wealth that corrupted Solomon. It was his wives. It was his wives. And ladies, this is nothing against you. It just happens to be a a weakness in, in people and certainly in men. If it's not money, it's women. If it's not women, it's pride or something. It's usually one of those three. And Solomon certainly fell for that. And then we saw after that... Solomon's wisdom on display as those two women, those two harlots who had two babies and one rolled over on the one during the night and then when they awoke, the, one of the women switched the baby and the dead one was with the woman who was really had a live child. So they go before Solomon and Solomon, in order to figure out Uh, who the real mother was, he created a ruse, really. He created a situation where he says, "Uh, bring a sword and we'll just divide the child in half. She says it's her child, she says it's her child, so we'll just finish this right now. Bring a sword, we'll just divide the child in half, and we'll put part of the child in her arms and part of the child. And the real mother spoke up. The woman who knew that it was her son, she said, I'll gladly give him up because I, I I would rather have him alive and know that he's okay. And Solomon knew right then because the other woman was like, no, kill him, cut him in half. So Solomon knew just from the, the maternal instinct that a mother has, he knew and was able to Bring out into the open the true mother of this child. And people were amazed at Solomon's wisdom. And so that's where we left off. And so let's just read through the whole chapter of, of chapter four, and then we'll go back and take a look at it. So now David, or excuse me, Solomon, is uh, established. He's, he's getting there. The, the temple hasn't been built yet. So King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest. Elihoreph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, scribes. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, the recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army. Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the officers. Zabud, the son of Nathan, a priest and the king's friend. Ahishar over the household, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, over the labor force. And Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year. And these are the names. Ben-Hur in the mountains of Ephraim. I'm sure you've heard of him before. Or at least we've heard of the name. Okay, it's not the same Ben-Hur. In the mountains of Ephraim, ben Decker in Mekez, Shealbim. Beth Shemesh in Elan Beth Hanan, Ben Hesed in Aruboth, to him belongs Soko and all the land of Hefer, Ben Abinadab in all the regions of Dor, he had Tapheth, the daughter of Solomon, as wife, Beanna, the son of Ahilud in Teanach, Megiddo in all Bethshan, which is beside Zeratan below Jezreel, from Bethshan to Abel Mahola as far as the other side of Jachmim, which I'm sure you are all aware of these places and can point to them on the Israeli map without any hesitation. Ben-Geber in Ramoth-Gilead. To him belongs the towns of Jair, the son of Manasseh in Gilead. To him also belongs the region of Argob in Bashan, 60 large cities with walls and bronze gate bars. Ahinadab, the son of Iddo, in Mahanaim, Ahimaaz in Naphtali, he also took Basmath, the daughter of Solomon, as wife. Beanna, the son of Hushai in Asher and Elof, Jehoshaphat, the son of Perua in, in Issachar. Shimei, the son of Elah in Benjamin. Geber, the son of Uri in the land of Gilead. And in the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan, he was the only governor who was in the land. So Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. And so Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt, and they brought tribute, and they served Solomon all the days of his life. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river. Whenever you see the word river, it's speaking of the Euphrates, okay? So... And he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely. I would underline that if I were you. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba all the days of Solomon. You might want to underline all of verse 25. That's an important verse. Verse 26, it says, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table. There was no lack in their supply. And they also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. And and God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite and Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all of the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. And he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals and of birds, of creeping things and of fish. And men of all nations from all the kings over the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon, what an amazing fellow. And... um, And so, you know, as we look at this chapter, you know, when I think of this, the thing that comes to my mind is God is a God of order, isn't He? You know, here's Solomon starting this new kingdom. And right off the bat, we see Solomon very organized. In fact, it was partly David's fault that Solomon was organized because David, remember, received not only he, you know, God had told him he couldn't build the temple, even though it was in his heart to build the Lord a house. And to put the Ark of the Covenant in that, in a permanent place where the children of Israel would worship there on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. But God says, "You can't, David, because you're a man of war. You've got much blood on your hands, but your son will." And remember, the covenant that God made to David, it's recorded for us in Second Samuel chapter seven verses 10 through 16. And uh, he, he speaks to him about his son that would come after him. And he would build the house. So David's thinking to himself, if I can't build this house, then I'm going to do everything for my son. I'm going I'm to gather all the wood, all of the gold, all the silver, all of the bronze, all of the workers, everything that's needed, all the precious stones. I'm going to give it all. I'm going to mass it up in a big warehouse somewhere. And I'm going to have it all ready for him so that when he is ready, he is going to build the most beautiful structure in the history of the world. And it was the most beautiful structure in the world. And so everything is given to Solomon. And not only that, but David got by inspiration the actual blueprint of the the temple. And he gave that to Solomon as well. And not only that, but he ordered all the all the servants, and he ordered them according to uh, to groupings, you know, for each each month of the year, and everybody would have their rightful place in doing certain things, and it was a very well oiled machine. And I love that because God is a God of order. Whatever God does, he doesn't do happenstance. He doesn't do half-baked. He doesn't do he doesn't bring order. He doesn't he, when when he's doing it, it's not chaotic. It's it's very organized and God knows what he's doing. And so he's able to give to David all of these things so that he could prepare his son. And can I tell you that the reign of Solomon was probably the most significant portion of time, that 40 years of Solomon's reign was the golden years of Israel. It has never been that good ever in my opinion and I think probably in many others opinions too because they had peace on every side. That's never occurred. In fact, it's it's not going to happen again until the millennial reign of Christ when he's on the earth. They aren't going to have peace. Right now they don't have peace on every side. They've got walls. And they've got electric fences, and they've got guards with M16s. I've been there at the right at the Lions Gate. As you before you even walk into the temple area, they got guards, women, (laughs) with M16s, and they're ready to use them, and they know how to use them. But there's organization because God is a God of order, and what He does, He does well. So Solomon's reign and kingdom was. Highly organized. In one Corinthians chapter fourteen, verse forty, it says this, and I love this: "Let all things be done decently and in order." Now, as Paul is speaking to the Corinthians, he's speaking about other things, but the truth—it's a truth. Let all things be done decently and in order, and that's why we try to do that as much here as we can, so that there's no chaos. And in First Corinthians chapter fourteen, um, again in the thirty-third verse, it says, "For God is not the author of confusion." But, um, but of peace. He's not the author of confusion. You can always find when God is not in control or when he is not leading, there is nothing but chaos and infighting. But when God is in control and when he's doing his will, there's going to be peace. There's going to be order. So notice in that, back in that first verse, it says, So King Solomon was king over all of Israel. And this would be the first, or actually, he would be the uh, the third king, and he would be the last king that would reign over Israel as a whole. Actually, arguably the second king, or you know, but maybe the third king, because we know that Saul, then certainly David, and then uh, Solomon reigned over the entire thing. But we know that after Solomon. And in the latter part of his life, his 1,000 wives that he had began to turn his heart away uh, into idolatry. And it was after that that the kingdom split in two. The northern ten tribes were governed by um, um, Jeroboam. And the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were governed by Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And it would be that way. For a very long time. In fact, only right now is Israel really one. But they're divided because of the, uh, the, um, the Palestinians and all of that. They don't have nearly as much land as they had. In fact, at this time in history, at Solomon's reign, they will their territory would be the most that Israel had ever had. And it would be the most territory that Israel would ever have until, again, in the Millennial Kingdom when there will be a lot more land that will be governed by Christ, certainly on the throne. But he, he gave them from the Euphrates all the way down to the River of Egypt. That's quite a big swath of land. And they've never, ever occupied all of that land. It's only at this time during Solomon's reign that they got even close. But still they weren't close. But it was close, very close. Notice verse 2. And, and these were his officials, Azariah, the son of Zadok. Now, when, when you look at this word son... Uh, It's interesting because in the Hebrew, it could mean a son or a grandson. So when you read certain genealogies and you hear about a man having the, and this person was the son of this person, bear in mind, and this happens in Daniel too, sometimes it may not mean the next son. It may actually mean, you know, going back even further, it could mean a grandson, maybe not the son itself. So son can mean his son or his grandson and um, and this Azariah evidently was indeed the grandson of Zadok, the priest, the one that David had uh, had with him when he was running through the uh, Israel, running away from Saul, trying to seek uh, refuge. This is that Zadok that ruled with David. So now he's an older, much, much older man, but now his grandson, Azariah, is now the priest. And in fact, you can look at 1 Chronicles. You might want to just put this note off to this, this second verse here because it'll, it'll corroborate what I'm saying. It's 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 8. Let me read it to you. Because it'll make sense to you. It says, Ahitab begat Zadok, and Zadok begat Ahimaaz, and Ahimaaz begat Azariah. Okay, so now you know that there is someone in between Zadok and Azariah. It was Ahimaaz. But he evidently died, and so now when it says Azariah, the son of Zadok, it's really his grandson. So just be aware of that word son as you look into the Bible, because it could mean the, a physical son, it could mean a grandson, or even a great grandson. Okay? So Zadak was one of the priests during uh, David's reign. So, uh, verse 3, it says um, Eli, Horaph, and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, they were scribes, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, the recorder. So, Jehoshaphat was also another man who served under David from the beginning of David's reign. And so this is kind of interesting. And, and so the chronicler, or the recorder, excuse me, he chronicled everyday events. He was one of those people, sort of like the right-hand man of the President of the United States, who chronicles everything that happens in the President's life that day. And that goes into the records, right? That, this is what a recorder does. And this man had been with Solomon's father, David, and now he's with Solomon, A very obviously a very faithful man. And... Um, in fact, in Second Samuel chapter eight, verses 15 and 16, it actually shows that that Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder for David during his reign. it 's right there in black and white. Second Samuel chapter eight verses 15 and sixteen. So going on now in our back in our text, so it says Benaah." Uh, the son of Jehoiada was over the army. Remember he, he took the place of Joab once he killed Joab. Remember uh, Solomon as soon as he was came into his reign he had uh, Benaiah uh, um, um, kill Joab because of his crimes and they were valid crimes. He killed two men in cold blood and he was a very bloodthirsty man and not a very uh, obedient man to David, there were times when it, he, you know, he was loyal to David, but only when it suited his own purpose. That was kind of the character of Joab. So now Benaiah, he's the one who Solomon told to go and to kill uh, Joab for his crimes. And now he is the head over the army and so and it also says that, and then Zadok and Abiathar the priests. and we know those two individuals. they were the high priests, but we also learned that Abiathar had, and we learned about this in chapter two. And he's listed here because he was a high priest. It doesn't mean that he continued in that office, because again, we look back at First Kings chapter two, specifically in verse 26 and 27, where Solomon, um, upon understanding that Abiathar cited, and was, was in conspiracy with Adonijah to come against David, once Solomon heard about that, he banished Abiathar from being priest. He didn't have him killed, but he told him to basically to go home and keep his mouth shut. And that's exactly what he did. But he still had the office of the high priest, but he was no longer operating in that office. And you know, I think it's interesting that Zadok... Jehoshaphat, Benaiah, who were really from the old guard from David's reign, that here they are now in Solomon, his son, his young son's administration. And they're there because they're faithful. They're there because they've been faithful. These men have been with David all his life, and their devotion, their loyalty had been tested. It had been tried, and it had been put on display for everyone to see. And and I think that's something interesting about us as individuals, as people. We have this propensity to... As time goes on in our life, situations that change, people change, your own heart changes, and you really find out really what you're made of when certain circumstances come into your life, and are you the type of person to cave in to popular opinion or uh, or or whatever it is of the day and 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 kind of go in a different direction or are you one of those people that's like a steady eddy and these guys were like the steady eddies they were the guys who dug their heels in and they stayed in the in the fight and they never took their eyes off of what god had told them to do and they never betrayed their king because even though david had his faults again he was a, an honorable man when he made his mistakes he repented he changed very different from saul saul died in unbelief but david died in faith even with his mistakes but these men they stuck by him and they're like it's almost like a hurricane going through a room you know you got these you got the king in the center and you got really men who are really loyal to him they're st- hanging close to the king, and they're holding tight to him, and the hurricane is blowing everybody here and there, and all that's left is David and these group of guys. And these are the guys that came into Solomon's reign, into his administration, and they were tried and true. They had the wisdom. They had the experience. And that's exactly what Solomon needed because, again, he's a young man. He's probably in his very early 20s. And he needs these men. And there's some cohesion there because these men knew David very well. They, they, they spent 40 years with him or more. And now they're serving his son and they are blessed. And they're happy to do so. So back in our text, verse 5. So Azariah, the son of Nathan, again, he's listing this administration now. Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the officers, Zebud, the son of Nathan, a priest and the king's friend. Now this Azariah here in chapter 5 is not the same as the Azariah in verse 2. Remember in the Bible, a lot, there's a lot of similar names. And even, um, you know, it, it just happens. There's a lot of Marys. As we've been going through the Gospel of John, the women who were at the crucifixion, there were three or four Marys there. I mean, think of how crazy that would be. You try to call their name and they all say, what? (laughs) So there's four Marys. There's even one here tonight, right? Yeah, she's the fifth Mary. Yeah. And so names in the Bible, you really have to look at some other sources and look into these things. Otherwise, you might misconstrue who this person is. Just like Shimei. Shimei's name is mentioned uh, 18 times in the Bible. But yet we know there was one Shimei who was in David's, one of his mighty men. And there was another Shimei who was the one who cursed David and threw rocks at him as he was going through Baharim on his way down to, out of exile, into Mahanaim over on the east side of the Jordan River. So a different Shimei. Different Azariah here. So Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the officers. So this man is a really important individual. He's over the officers that we're about to read in the next uh, group of verses from uh, verses 7 through 19. 7 through 19, he is going to be over all of these men. And notice Zabod, the son of Nathan. So who is this Nathan? Uh, We believe that it's very probable, Nathan, the seer that David had loved, and had been in his administration as well. It's it's hard to know for sure, 100%, but we believe that it's very possible that this was Nathan, the seer, the prophet, the one who told David, David, you're the man, and confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba. And um, and so we believe that these are his sons now, Zeba, the son of Nathan, Azariah, the son of Nathan. And what a great... Uh, uh, opportunity for these two young men, if it is indeed that Nathan, to have such a wonderful dad, to have such a wonderful father. You know, fathers are so important in the lives of people, and uh, especially in our culture today. So many young men without dads, whether it's through death or whether it's because of divorce or whatever it is. And I I just want to encourage the men here, if you're a dad, to stay true, to stay faithful, be that role model for your boys, for your young girls, for your kids and your grandkids, your grandsons and your granddaughters. Be that role model. And fight the good fight. If you call yourself a Christian, be the, most, the best Christian in town. Be the man who takes it. Is it easy? No, it's not. It is never easy to follow the Lord. If anybody tells you it's easy, there's something wrong. Now, there's great times of joy and peace. There's no doubt about that. But it is not easy at times. In fact, sometimes telling the truth is very hard. It's very difficult. It's much easier to tell a lie. It's much easier to cave into the flesh and give in to the natural appetites of the flesh, which is what causes so many divorces, which is what causes so many men to, to be out of the picture of, of the mother and the kids. So guys, stand. Be men and be the very best men because God wants you to be. Your kids and your grandkids want to see that. Be the best role model and fight the good fight. Fight it and be victorious over your flesh and over the things that are tearing you away from your family and your kids and your imaginations and the lusts of your own heart and all the opportunities. Turn away from all of it and be the role model, and God will reward you one day. And believe me, you may not think it's a big deal now, but when you stand before him and you receive rewards for your faithfulness of what you've done since you've been a Christian, it's gonna be a big deal then. It's going to be a real big, big deal. And you know what? It's a really big deal for your kids and your grandkids because they need that more than ever. Their future is so tied up in your faithfulness. You're a part of it. It doesn't mean that your kids aren't still going to go south even though you're a good parent. You could be an exemplary parent, but be an exemplary parent because if you don't, the statistics are huge that those kids are going to go and they're going to do things and maybe even ruin their lives. So... I'll stop there. So, so verse 6 says, Ahisar over the household and Ador, Adoniram the son of Abda over the labor force. And we'll look at that labor force here shortly that the the Bible here is talking about. And so now as we get through verses 7 through 19, it is a whole different section. And basically these, we're going to be listing the 12 governors who supplied food to Solomon and the royal family. And Solomon's family was quite large. I mean, probably before he had the thousand wives, but just thinking about the, um, his family, it was a very large gathering around his table every day and every lunch and every breakfast. And so in Solomon, so 7 through 19 are one section that we're going to look at. So Solomon had 12 governors, and this is another great thing about Solomon. He organized things, and again, he was a man of order, and God is a God of order. So he had 12 governors over all of Israel, and good for him, too, because he was in Jerusalem. You can't be all places at once, but when you've got men who are reporting to you, even before texting and cell phones, they can have couriers sending you every day what's going on in all these different places and that's all these guys would do little couriers would just run from one place to another all bringing information back to to Solomon but he had 12 governors over Israel who provided food for the king and his household each one made provision for one month of the year so that was kind of like a rotating thing not everybody not one group of people had this massive responsibility to feed the king and his household every day it was moved around to all these different places and made it thus much more manageable and fair. Sort of. We'll get to that in a minute. But these are their names. Ben-Hur. Whenever you see Ben in a hyphen and a name, that literally means son. Son of Hur. So Ben-Hur is son of Hur. And in the mountains of Ephraim. So what you're going to see here is the name is going to be given and then it's going to be the territory that that person is responsible for. If we were to look at a map, you would see... The, these, these twelve different men and the territories that belong to them, their jurisdictions, if you will. And so these are their names, Ben Hur, in the mountains of Ephraim, and then Ben Decker, or the son of Decker, and Makaz, that's a, that's the name of a town, Shealbim, Beth Shemesh, and Elon Beth Hanan, these are all cities in his jurisdiction and then finally uh or going on or excuse me ben hesed in aruboth to him belongs soco and all the land of Hefer, and then ben abinadab in all the regions of dor he had taphath the daughter of solomon as wife so this man has an extra benefit because he's got a he's a pretty important guy because uh his his wife is solomon's daughter So I'm certain that this man had a very influential uh, place that he was uh, overseeing in this regions of Dor. And we're also going to see that this officer, as well as Ahimaaz, in verse 15, they both married one of Solomon's daughters. So Solomon's, uh, two of his daughters, anyway, were married to uh, two of these different governors, and this was one of them. And so... Verse 12, Beanna, the son of Ahilud, and Teanach, and Megiddo, and all Bethshan, which is beside Zeratan, below Jezreel, from Bethshan to Abel-Meholah, as far as the other side of Jotneam. And these are places, I, I, just as a, a selfish plug here for Israel, should we go next year, uh, Lord willing, we're going to go with the group out of the Finger Lakes, But Megiddo and many of these places like Beth Shan, these are places that we visit. These are what we call um, class A sites, meaning we know exactly what happened there. It's not like some sites in Israel that tour guides will take you over to some place and they think it's the site, but it's really not. No, these are are A sites. These are the, the big ones where we know exactly what happened at these places because they're recorded for us in the Bible. But we do go to Megiddo. And when you go to Megiddo, your eyes are going to pop out of your head because you're going to see the Valley of Armageddon, where a battle that is yet future to us happens. You're going to be on, and right at the right at the base of Mount, um, um, oh goodness, it's the mountain I'm drawing a blank, but it's a mountain where um, uh, this is really embarrassing. <laughs> I have to erase this from the tape. Um, there's a mountain where, uh, and right in the valley actually is where. Um Elijah met, with the, met and faced off with the 450 prophets of Baal. That's not too far away from where Megiddo is. And all of that is in the valley of Jezreel. And up there in that area is the valley of Armageddon. And Napoleon once said uh, of that place, he said, this would be the perfect place for a battle. And it will be. And it's a big land. And right in the center of it, I love this, I'm digressing, and I know that. Um, right in the center of it is an Israeli Air Force base. And it's really, you can see the jets fly in, and they fly in, these F-14s, these high-tech fancy things, and they fly right in in the center, and then they just disappear. They are all, They're all underground. So they have these... Levers that take them down underneath the ground. So, all under the valley, there, they've got this at some points, they've got these places where all these hornets are lying, waiting for the right thing to wake them up, and then they come flying out. And it's really quite amazing to watch them take off and come in. It is, it's like a beehive underneath that nobody can see. But it's really kind of nice. So, anyway, I digress. But so in Ta'anach, so this Ba'ana, the son of Ahilud, he is over this area Ta'anach, Megiddo, and all Beth uh, and I've already read that, so let's go on to verse 13. So ben Giber, the son of Geber in Ramoth-Gilead. Now we're looking at probably the eastern side of the Jordan River. To him belongs the towns of Jair, the son of Manasseh in Gilead. To him also belongs the region of Argob and Bashan. Sixty large cities with walls and bronze gate bars. Ahinadab, the son of Iddo in Mahanaim. Ahimaaz in Naphtali, he also took uh, Basimath, the daughter of Solomon, his wife, another privileged fellow. Beanna, the son of Hushai in Asher and Eloth. And then Jehoshaphat, the son of Perua in Issachar. And Shimei, a different Shimei again, not the Shimei who was in David's um, mighty men and not the Shimei who scorned David and cursed him, but a different Shimei, the son of Elah in Benjamin. Um, actually, th- th- this is, I'm sorry, this is probably the same gentleman who was mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, one of David's mighty men. Sorry, I misspoke on that. Um, that- that's very likely to be the same man. And um, again, he did not side with David's son, Adonijah. That- that's very clear. And so, But it is definitely not the Shimei that cursed David in 2 Samuel 16. So, verse 19, And Geber, the son of Uri in the land of Gilead, in the country of Sion, king of the Amorites, and of Og of Bashan, he was the only governor who was in the land. And you you may, as we go through this, we've mentioned a lot of the tribes of Israel, but there's one that you didn't hear about, and that's Judah. You didn't hear about any of this tribute coming from anybody from Judah, and because Solomon lived in you know right on the you know Jerusalem is right on the right on the edge of Judah and Benjamin, but you don 't hear of Judah being um, part of this group that would monthly provide provisions for the king and uh, some have thought that this may have been a point of contention that may have had within it seeds of resentment that was instrumental in the split of the country. Certainly wasn't the only thing, but it may have been one of those things that people, maybe they didn't really vocalize, but maybe at some point they're thinking, hey, why, do, why are all these different guys and regions supplying food to the king, but Judah, in the place where he is, is not supplying? You know. And so the, there's a truth that you can't please everybody. <laughs> and even as the king, he has the right to do that. He has the right to do that, but it won't stop people from grumbling and complaining. Um, And not that they did at this time. And again, it's just a conjecture that that may have been a seat of contention, but it's very possible. And knowing people the way I do, knowing my own self, even though I don't really know myself, but just understanding human nature, eventually those things kind of get under your skin and all it takes is a group of people to start talking. And next thing you know, there's a group rising up, you know, canceling Solomon on Twitter and Facebook, right? (laughs) All it takes. So, verse 20. So it says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. This is actually, like I said, the golden time of Israel. This was the greatest time. And you know, whenever there's peace and prosperity, whenever there is good times, and this happened after the four, at 1945 or after the World War II had ended, remember, there was a population explosion. They call them baby boomers, right? Because everybody knew that the war was over. The economy was coming back. People were happy. The war was over. And people are populating Obviously, they're they're excited, they're happy, they're thriving. And it's a beautiful thing, actually. I love it when that happens. And so does God. He is all for that. That was one of the commands that he gave to Adam and Eve. To be fruitful and multiply. That was a commandment. And when there's peace and safety and everyone's feeling good about things, that's usually when the population starts to explode. Because hearts are excited again. And there's, there's a release from the, the oppression of war and these things. And, so, and, and, and they've never experienced, like I said, Israel at this time is in their golden moment. Their golden moment. It has never been that good and never will be until Christ comes back and he establishes his millennial reign in Jerusalem. That's going to be the second time that we're going to see something even similar to this, but it'll probably be even better. Even better. So Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea and multitude, eating and drinking, rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river, meaning the uh, river to the land of, uh, of the Philistines. The river is the Euphrates, as far as the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. That's a lot of animals. And we think about all the mouths that he was feeding at that time, and that's a lot. So for he had dominion over all the region from this side of the river, meaning the river Euphrates, from saw even to gaza namely all of the kings on this side of the river speaking of the euphrates again and he had peace on every side all around him uh, such a wonderful thing again they, they've never experienced such peace as they have at this time and that's why it's such a wonderful moment in fact in genesis 15 remember that god speaking to abram and we call it the Abrahamic covenant, because not only did God tell Abram that he would his his seed would be as uh, like the sand of the seashore that he would populate through this man that his seed would be very populous like the sand of the seashore, but He also told him that he says. Uh, I'm going well let me just read it to you. He says on the same day, this is Genesis fifteen, verse eighteen. It says on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, the land that Abraham was currently occupying, which was modern day Israel, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he lists all the people groups in there that he is going to have dominion over. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Giants, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, the people who populated the very area on top of the Temple Mount. That Joab went up that water shaft that we visit when we go to Israel. You see the place where he came up and he conquered the city. And also it's reiterated for us in Exodus chapter 23, verse 30. God reiterates this, this plan of his to give them all of this land. He says, little by little, I will drive these inhabitants out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, meaning the... Um, uh, uh, to the Mediterranean, excuse me, and the Philistia, and from the desert to the river, meaning the Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will be a snare to you. And I bring this up now because that's exactly what's going to happen to Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived and ever will live, apart from Christ. The thing that got him, his Achilles heel, and every person usually has them, was women, his wives. Later on in his reign, he fell prey to sacrificing to all these different women, to their gods, of these different kings that he had made these treaties with. But in Psalm 33, it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is Jehovah, is the Lord the people he has chosen for his own, as his own inheritance you know and i love that because america may you be that nation whose god is the lord not many gods and that's the way it is many people have kicked god out and i know some really wonderful people in and in public schools, and I'm so glad they're there. And they don't like when I say this, but it's true. The school system, not them, they're they're there and I'm so happy that they're there, but the school system, the higher-ups, have kicked God out of the schools. And they've inherited the whirlwind as a result of that. They've inherited what they've got right now. And it's their fault. And they will be accountable on the day of judgment unless they repent. They will. They will. They will stand before God and give an account. And the Bible says that if you even stumble any one of these little ones, it would be better for you to take a millstone and tie it around your neck and be cast into the Marianas Trench. That's how serious God takes it. And for anyone who's listening to this, whether it's on the radio later or even online, if you're a teacher or you hear this and you're you're not a believer, you better be careful about what you do with those kids. And you better be a voice for them. Because they have no voice. Because their voices don't matter. And now their parents' voices don't matter either. And Judah, verse 25, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely. Notice, again, such a wonderful time. A blessed time that they'll never know again for a very long time. Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan as far as to Beersheba, which is the northernmost part of Israel, and Dan to the southernmost part, Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. And again, um, the only time we read about this um, happening, uh, in fact, he mentions that each man under his vine and under his fig tree, you might want to underline that, and I want you to write a couple scriptures down next to that underlined portion. And here they are, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Micah, 4 verses 1 through 4. And then Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 10. Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 10. Just for time's sake, we're going to look at the one from Micah. But listen to this. This is the prophet prophesying of a time that is still yet future to us. It's going to be in the millennial reign, okay? So he's speaking of ultimately Zion's restoration, Uh, The Lord's reign in Zion, in the millennial reign of Christ. Listen to this, this is so awesome. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, that gives us a a tip-off here, it's it's even still future to us, that the mountains of, of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. And shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. Yes, even in the millennial reign. He's going to rebuke nations afar off and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war any more but notice here in verse 4 but everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree <laughs> There's no mistake why it's that phrase is in the in this area where Solomon is starting to reign because it's not going to happen again until the millennial reign and Micah tells us and so does Zechariah in chapter 3, verse 10. Very interesting, very interesting. Because most of the Jewish people's existence has been wrought with struggle, for survival, not only inter- individually, but also nationally. Anti-Semitism has always been the devil's playing card that he uses over and over again in every generation. We saw it in the 40s when Adolf Hitler Uh, He was a master at propaganda, and he slandered the Jews for everything. Anything that was going wrong, he blamed on the Jews, and his propaganda was such that the leaflets and the caricatures that they put in the newspapers, he barraged the people of Germany with this kind of stuff, and they believed it. They took it hook, line, and sinker, and they hated the Jews because all they heard was that they are the problem, they are the problem, they are the problem, and it worked wonderfully. He was a master at propaganda, and why is that? Because he was led by Satan. That is why he was a master. And we see the same thing today. But at this time, wonder of wonders, Israel dwelling safely, and every man being under his fig tree and under his vine tree, same thing in the millennial reign, yet future to us. What a wonderful thing. So notice in verse 26, So Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses? Are you serious? Hmm... Put a question mark next to that, if you would. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. The correct reading of this is really 4,000. And the reason we know that is because, write this scripture, scripture reference off to the side. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 25, because it gives us the real record here. Now remember, so it's 4,000, not really 40,000. Now one thing you have to remember, again, in, in the Hebrew, when they would write a letter, one little one little jot or one little tittle, these, these little markings that they put over numbers can mean either 40, 400, or 4,000, or 40,000, and it's all just these little marks, okay? And so a scribal error... In the a copying from the original, could have made that. The original had it, but when they copied it, something got missing. And so don't hang your hat and, and let it destroy your faith if numbers in uh, Samuel and Kings and a few other places are a little bit garbled. Usually you can corroborate by looking at Chronicles, which is a much better source. Uh, the manuscripts are in much better shape, and so it says in Second Chronicles chapter nine verse twenty-five, it says Solomon had four thousand stalls for his horses and chariots, and twelve thousand horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities, and with the king at Jerusalem. Um, and he had fourteen hundred chariots, and so it makes sense if you have fourteen hundred chariots, how many men usually ride in a chariot? Maybe one or two, but you got two horses. Probably pulling the chariot, you got at least one guy in the chariot, and so it makes a lot more sense. Even even though the scripture tells us in Second Chronicles, or excuse me, in Second Chronicles nine twenty five that it indeed was four thousand instead of forty thousand, and so and Megiddo is actually one of these chariot cities. In fact, and you can write this down too in First Kings chapter nine, verse fifteen through nineteen. It gives us uh, a hint at these chariot cities that Solomon had made. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 15 through 19. Let me read it to you. It says, And this is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised, to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Melo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. These are cities. And it says Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites. And then finally, I'm just going to skip down to verse 19 for the sake of time. It says, And all the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots and cities for his cavalry and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion. So we know that the Megiddo was one of these cities. And in fact, if you visit Megiddo, if you go to Israel with us next year, you'll see the actual stables and, and, and these stables, in Megiddo alone, there's at least room for 450 horses and about 150 chariots. And they've already uncovered a lot of this stuff. And you can actually see the feeding troughs, the mangers, really. The, the stone thing that's cut out where the horses would eat and drink. They're right, they're right there. And you can see where the, 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 the stalls would have been. And, and you know, they've, they've they figured that out, the archaeologists. But Solomon wasn't supposed to multiply horses. (laughs) Write this scripture down. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17. Let me read it to you. He wasn't supposed to multiply horses. In fact, he was the only one of the the, um, uh, kings who, uh, who did this. So it says... God, speaking to the children of Israel, said this, When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses and one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again, and neither shall you multiply wives for yourself. And so we already see these two harbingers, if you will, that, are, that God has already spoken against, and, and, and Solomon is already on, on, on unsteady ground as God has given him everything. And God doesn't, didn't do it. He knew that Solomon would do that, but he made a promise to Solomon. He made a promise, but Solomon wouldn't, wouldn't even make it to his 70th birthday. I think he died when he was probably around 69. So he died relatively young, and, and that was, a, that was a, a promise that God had made to him. If you turn away from me, you're, you're not going to have long life. I believe that if Solomon would have kept his nose clean and would have continued uh, staying away from these prohibitions that God had told him that would get him into trouble, he probably, maybe, he probably would have lived longer. Maybe, because God made the promise. If you do this, you will live longer. But he didn't, and he didn't. And even his father, David, says in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. In Psalm 33, verse 16, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety, neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. And finally, even Isaiah, in Isaiah 31, verse 1, says this, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots Because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Verse 27 back in our text now it says, And these governors, these 12 governors, each man. In his month provided food for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table. And there was no lack in their supply. And they also brought barley and straw to the proper places, to these chariot cities, for the horses and the steeds, each man according to his charge. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart, like the sand that is on the seashore. Um, This ought to encourage us because toward the end of Solomon's reign, as I've already said, he began to slip in his devotion to the Lord. And guess what? Did any of these things take the Lord by surprise? It didn't. If God is who he says he is, he's omniscient and omnipresent, it did not slip his mind. God knew very well, but God made a promise and God was going to fulfill His promise. God was going to do certain things, and then there was a conditional promise where God says, "And if." You can read it again in Second Samuel, Second uh, um, Samuel, chapter seven, verses ten through sixteen, which is the Davidic covenant. You know, this is what I'm going to do. This is what your son's going to do. And if he does this, then I will do. Then this will happen. If he turns away from me, then he's not going to live long. You know, God spells that out. And he was faithful to complete that. But he still continued to bless Solomon. He never had any troubles all of his days, although he made some really bad mistakes. And I love in Romans 11, verse 29, it says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They're without repentance. God, knowing all of this that would happen to Solomon and the things he would do, he knew that, and yet he still chose Solomon. I don't know about you, but that encourages me because he loves you and he loves me. He's going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish through your life. There are certain things that are uh, unconditional, and there are things that are conditional, but he's given us so many unconditional promises. If you are mine, you're going to go. <laughs> when, I, when I, you know, at the time of the rapture, you're going to go. But because of the things that you've done, your rewards are maybe different than others. But you're going to get in. But see, I'd much rather get in and have a lot of rewards rather than just get in by the skin of my teeth as if by fire and then sit there with a, a copper kettle pan and, you know, hitting it against a spoon. If that's all I got, praise the Lord, at least I'm in, right? But I would rather, wouldn't God rather have all of us have our you know, many crowns that we can cast at his feet and say, Lord, you're the one. And that'll just be a part of our worship, right? How awesome is that going to be? Thus Solomon, verse 30, excelled in wisdom above all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all the men, than Ethan the Ezrahite and Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. and his fame was in all of surrounding areas, and he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. The proverbs that we have in the book are not all of the proverbs. Those are only a small portion of them. Can you imagine where, they, where, are, they, where are they at? Are they somewhere on the Earth in a, in a hold-up in a cave in Qumran, somewhere they just haven't discovered yet? Wouldn't that be interesting? But God made sure that the ones that He really wanted us to have are in right here. He made sure of it, that the most important ones are given to us, and the songs. A thousand and five songs. We only know, he, he wrote, uh, we believe, three different psalms. Psalm 73, Psalm 127, Psalm 132, Solomon did. And he also wrote the song, the song of Solomon, which is one of his songs. Now we've got a thousand and four left. Where are they? But God made sure that we had one of them, at least, and a few psalms. And also, verse 33, he spoke of trees. And I think about this, and it blows my mind, and we're almost done. Thank you for your patience. Also, he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals and of birds and of creeping things and of fish, and he had time, and he thought about these things, and he observed, and God gave him great wisdom. Everyone was coming to Solomon, you know, and one of the great takeaways from this chapter is the fact that God is a keeper of his promises. You know, of the men and nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, they came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And I think, and we'll end with this, this passage right here, but God keeps his promises. Notice what God says to Solomon. And, I, and I'll just read this and we'll pray and we'll end. It's in 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. This is the promise and promise. The unconditional promise, and then there's a conditional promise. And let me know when you see it. You'll always know a conditional promise when you see these two words. If, then. If you do this, then I'll do that. Whenever you see that in the scripture, it's a conditional promise. Meaning, if you don't do this, or if you do this, then I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this. It's conditional. But in this promise that we're reading in 1 Kings 3, verse 5-14, through you're going to see unconditional promise, And then a conditional promise. Notice. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God says, ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, you've shown great mercy to your servant David, my father. Because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You've continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I'm a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours and this is where God comes in (laughs) the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing and then God said to him because you have asked this thing And have not asked long life for yourself, nor have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your adversaries, but you asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and an understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall there be anyone arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there shall be Not anyone like you among the kings all your days. Those are unconditional promises. But beginning now in verse 14 is the kicker. (laughs) The unconditional promise. And how do I know that? The very second word within that verse, 14. So if circle the word if, if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, and was David perfect? No, he wasn't, but he repented and his relationship was restored. Then, circle the word then, there's your conditional statement. If you do those things, then, notice, I will lengthen your days. There it is. If you do those things, I will lengthen your days. But we know that Solomon did not. And we're going to look at that as we get further. He amassed the horses and the chariots. He had the multiple wives. And they did finally ensnare him, just as the scripture foretold would happen. If he did those things, it certainly caught up to him. And as a result of that, Solomon died before his 70th birthday, we believe. Many of you are older than 60 or older than 70 here tonight. And 70 is really not that old. When you get 85 and 90, you're getting up there. But until then, you know, and notice that God was faithful to what he said. Do you see it? He was faithful to his word. He, he did exactly what he was going to do unconditionally. He was going to give him wisdom and wealth and honor, and he did that. And without repentance, knowing very well what would happen, but he also made the promise, the conditional promise now, but if you walk away from me, Solomon, then I will lengthen our... Uh, as your, if you walk, um, if you walk my, in my ways and keep my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. But he didn't. And so he didn't lengthen his days. So God, what a faithful promise keeper. He is the promise keeper. I can't keep promises. I don't even like making promises to anyone, although I have. But I'm learning not to make promises. I'm learning not to make oaths that I can't keep. But God is the one who's faithful. Don't you love that about God? And he's made promises to you. Great and precious promises in his word. And you know what? We've got a lifetime until he returns, we've got, soul, we got whatever time we have left to really love him, to serve him, and to get to know him better and to uh, absorb all that he has for us so that we're ready when he comes. I don't know about you. I don't know if I'm ready, but I'd like to think I am because I want to go now. If the Lord rang the bell, in, in spite of my failings and my sin, I would be like, Lord, poke me. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's go. Let's serve the Lord. Let's love him and get serious about your walk. Let it be a joy, because it really is. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your strength. Let him totally consume you. Lift all the burdens from your hearts and just fall upon him daily. Fall upon him daily and say, Lord, I am nothing, but you are everything, and I just give you everything. I give you this day, Lord. Order my steps. Help me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And Lord, I, I love you and I'm so thankful. And you know the peace and the love that he gives is overwhelming. I pray that you all experience that. Tonight and tomorrow as you wake up. Let's stand and let's pray. I've kept you and thank you for your, again for your patience. Father, we thank you for this night. Pray that you'd bless us, Lord. Encourage us in these challenges uh, that we read about and certainly the challenges that face us. Lord, uh, in in every part of our life, Lord. We belong to you, and Lord, take control of our lives. Help us to not be afraid of you and to give you everything, Lord Jesus Christ. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Have a blessed night. Amen.